0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine the Latest. Today, as details of Ukraine's attack in Makivka continue to unfurl, we consider what the response on Russian social media may tell us about Moscow's next move. Plus, we're joined by guest Dr. Rory Finnan, a specialist on Crimea to discuss the critical role the peninsula seems destined to play in the months and years ahead.
1: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end
2: in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilised energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us.
3: We're strong.
2: We're Ukrainians.
0: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 4th of January, day 315. Today, to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, our senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, and guest, Dr. Rory Finnan, Associate Professor of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Cambridge. I started by asking Roland for the most significant updates in the military sphere in the past 24 hours.
2: Hello, everybody. Listen, this strike in Mikhevka, the New Year's Eve strike against a, a Russian barracks, basically, that killed large numbers of men. We're being cautious about the numbers, but it's still still dominating war reporting, interestingly, in Russia itself. So the the latest update from the Russian Ministry of Defense um, says that 89 servicemen have been confirmed killed. Yesterday, they were saying 63. That was from Lieutenant General Sergei uh, Sevrukov, who's the deputy head of their military political department. And he he also indicated that, you know, more bodies are being pulled out of the rubble. It's it's possible these numbers they're giving us are simply the positively identified victims. And that we're going to see this number go up further. As we noted yesterday, this is where pretty sure the largest single loss of life that the russians have admitted to so even if more men were lost uh, when the cruiser Moskva was sunk earlier in the war this is the highest single loss of life in a single instant the russians have admitted to since the war began which uh, you know talks about how how serious this is now he's already laid the blame uh, general uh Severukov, um said that, quote, currently a commission is working to investigate the circumstances of what happened, but it's already obvious that the main reason for what happened was the turning on and massive use by personnel of mobile phones within reach of enemy weapons contrary to a ban and he went on to say that measures would be taken to ensure such incidents did not happen again and those responsible would be punished. Now I'm going to come back to that in a second. There is another factor which, which is the possible storing of ammunition in the barracks which may have exacerbated it. Britain's Ministry of Defence has said in its its daily update um, that, you know, Russia has, uh, quote, the Russian military has a record of unsafe ammunition storage from well before the current war, but this incident highlights how unprofessional practices continue to contribute to Russia's high casualty rate and says it's, it's quite likely that ammunition did exacerbate that. But listen, I, I've been speaking to analysts this morning who say that that's not really the issue. The issue is you shouldn't have dozens, hundreds of men in one building, you know, only about a dozen miles from the Avdivka front line, which is a, which is a very active, has been a very active... Um, section of the front since um, the war began. And, and the, the ministry's comments, the Russian defense ministry's comments have caused absolute outrage on Russian military telegram. You know, the bloggers think people like Simeon Piergov, people like Alexander Kotz, universally noting that he did not address this point, universally noting that the ministry of defense seems keen to blame the, you know, the, the privates and the corporals turning on their mobile phones and not blame the officers who put them, put a huge number of troops in that building. And, and, the, the thing to note there is that outrage on Telegram, it does tend, further down the line, it can end up shaping or it can indicate a decision within the Kremlin to shape the national conversation for decisions further down the line. In that regard, I'd note this, this very formally almost completely unknown group calling itself the group of of military mothers or something like that it's it's a telegram channel that appeared relatively recently and suddenly they are putting out demands for vladimir putin to announce mobilization to get more draft more men into the military um in response to this vladimir putin himself has not commented on mikhyevka but i think we should note how how broadly the russian state media is is reporting on this Um, i would expect Expect you know I would not be surprised to see you know a week or two down the line a significant Kremlin decision coming based off the back of this, and that perhaps what we 're seeing here is the kind of the preparatory work the informational preparatory work to to form public opinion to to prepare for that kind of step. Um, other developments, the Ukrainians say five dead and 13 wounded on Tuesday. That's from the deputy head of the Ukrainian presidential office, Kirilo Tymoshenko. He said victims among the civilian population are as a result of the armed aggression of the Russian Federation for January the 3rd. That's up to nine o'clock this morning local time. One person dead in Donetsk region, five wounded, one wounded in Kharkiv region, two wounded in Kherson and uh, in Kherson Region 4 dead. That's obviously not including uh, military casualties. Volodymyr Zelensky last night, again trailing this talk of a a coming Russian offensive in the spring. He was talking after, in his nightly address, he puts out a video on Telegram, he'd, he'd just spoken to Justin Trudeau of Canada. He said, We have no doubt that the current masters of Russia will throw everything they have left and everyone they can round up to try to turn the tide of the war, or at least delay their defeat we have to disrupt this Russian sc- scenario, we are preparing for this, the terrorists must lose and any attempt for their new offensive must fail. Of course, before Christmas, Valery Zaluzhny, the Ukrainian uh, Ukraine's top general, warned of, of, of a new offensive coming in the spring. He suggested it might come through Belarus, uh, a second attempt to attack Ukraine in the north. Uh, we haven't actually seen any evidence that, that's, um, that that is imminent, but it's clearly something the Ukrainians are are talking about a lot. Russia's Rostec says that the mass production of new drones will start in the next few months. And 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 lastly on this, there seems to be a bit of a deadlock at the front. We had some interesting comments from Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, yesterday where he he, he basically seemed to blame the lack of progress in Bakhmut, which has turned into this kind of mini Verdun, a lack of supplies from the Kremlin, but also paying tribute to to kind of the Ukrainian defense. He said in 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 uh, videoed comments in Artyomovsk, that's the, the Russian, the old Soviet name for Bakhmut, the Russian is In Artyomovsk, every house has become a fortress. Our guys sometimes fight for more than a day over one house. Sometimes they fight for weeks over one house. And behind this house, there's still a new line of defence and not one. And how many such lines of defence are there in Artyomovsk? 500 would probably not be an exaggeration. Um, he talked about shortage of shells and um, armoured vehicles. Um, and I will I'll leave it there.
0: Thank you so much for that, Roland. Francis, I believe you have some more updates on the military front for us. So please take us away.
1: Yes, thank you, Claire. And to everyone who's written to me in the past 24 hours in response to my assessment of the current strategic situation, I'm doing my best to work through them all on Twitter. So do bear with me. I said then that I welcomed alternative perspectives, and in that spirit, I wanted to offer up a few more military analysts and how they think events on the ground will unfold in 2023. These are from a recent article on the BBC website. Uh, The first voice is from Michael Clark, who's Associate Director of the Strategic Studies Institute at Exeter University, and he argues that for 2023, the key determinant will be the fate of Russia's spring offensive. Putin had admitted that about 50,000 of the newly mobilized troops are already at the front. The other 250,000 of them just mobilized are training. There is no scope for anything but more war until the fortunes of these new Russian forces are settled on the battlefield. Another perspective from Andrei Pointovsky, a scientist and analyst based in Washington. He says, slightly different take, Ukraine will win by restoring completely its territorial integrity by spring 2023 at the latest. Two factors shaping this conclusion, and he goes on, says that one of them is the motivation, determination and courage of the Ukrainian military. And the other is that the West has finally grown up and realized the magnitude of the historical challenge it faces. I think that's true to an extent, although I would question whether that is absolute for the reasons I talked about yesterday. Uh, Finally, uh, Ben Hodges, who will be familiar to some listeners, he's um, very vocal on matters of Ukraine, former commanding general of the United States Army Europe. He's written for The Telegraph in the past. And he also thinks that the end of 2023 will see Crimea fully restored to Ukrainian control and sovereignty, though there may be some sort of agreement, he says, that allows Russia to phase out some of its naval presence in Sevastopol, perhaps even to the end of the treaty, approximately 2025, that existed before Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. And indeed, that's a really interesting question, one that no doubt we'll get into with Rory uh, shortly. But just in terms of other updates um, in the political and energy fronts, the first is that uh, there's been quite an interesting uh, <laughs> um, event taking place in the last four hours where a former Russian deputy prime minister has sent a piece of shrapnel from a French howitzer to President Emmanuel Macron. And uh, he, there was a, a, a letter, an open letter that he's published publicly. Uh, he said, in this envelope, along with my letter, you will see a fragment of a shell from a French how- uh, artillery piece. It punctured my right shoulder and lodged in the fifth cervical vertebrae among only a millimetre away from killing me or rendering me an invalid. So what's the significance of that? Well, clearly taunting from the Russians there. And as well as just being indicative, I think, of, of the fact that for all of the talk that we've made on the podcast, that, there, that, um, that some countries have, have given more military support other than others, and that is true, the French have also been very important in, in, in what they have provided and um, and so it, their weaponry is being used on on the battlefield as we speak, as is as is German, as is British, um, as is American, of course. Um, just something else in the political diplomatic space, because we've touched on it, and I think it's just relevant in the background to Ukraine, is that the U.S. House of Representatives failed to elect a speaker on the first ballot for the first time in a century uh, or this was um, overnight for us. Um, as a Republican revolt through Congress into chaos. Now I'm going to all the nuances of this, but essentially, about 19 hardline conservative Republicans have voted against their own party's nominee, Kevin McCarthy, meaning that he fell short of a majority in the 435-member House. Now, the reason this is all relevant is that it was Kevin McCarthy who was the uh, individual who made those remarks. Bound. Uh, Ukraine not receiving a blank check from America and has sometimes been seen as having a more sceptical view, or at least re- representing a more sceptical view amongst the Republican wing of, uh, of of American opinion with regards to continued support for Ukraine. Now, that's not the reason why he has not been supported. In fact, it's almost the opposite, that it's the hardliners, as I say, in the Republican Party who think that he's uh, too moderate, their sort of Trumpite wing. So that's quite interesting. But... Just something for us to follow, given the discussions around the Republican Party on matters of Ukraine with um, being very, very relevant to the future trajectory of the war, arguably, in terms of the support that America provides. Although it has to be emphasised as well, the Democratic Party also have their own issues around uh, Ukraine and, 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 and fierce debates around that. Uh, regular listeners will recall that letter that was sent that uh, caused quite consternation at the time. And then just lastly, uh, because I've talked about energy yesterday, some quite promising news that's been published here in Britain, indeed in our paper about how households are forecast to pay £500 less than feared on their energy bills in the second half of this year after gas prices have dropped to their lowest level since before the war in Ukraine. Well, why does this matter? Well, it's obvious because the fact is that, as I was saying yesterday, Putin's pillar strategy for this period was that the West would really be feeling domestic pressure from its populations uh, 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 as a consequence of the cost of energy over a cold winter. Because things have been so mild, as I say, it was 17 degrees in Warsaw th- uh, yesterday or over the weekend, uh, this has meant that the cost of energy has gone way, way down, the usage has gone down. And that can only be a positive thing from the Ukrainian perspective because there is less of that domestic pressure within countries. And that will mean that leaders can continue to remain robust on the matter of Ukraine. So that's there we are in the update space uh, in the last 24 hours.
0: Thanks again, Francis. And it's now our pleasure to welcome Dr. Rory Finnan, who is University Associate Professor of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Cambridge, to the podcast. Um, Dr Finn, in your primary research interest is the interplay of literature and national identity in Ukraine. So that's very interesting for us to hear more about. Um, I'd first like to start with what I believe is your specialist subject, Crimea. So could you give us non-experts in the room a broad brushstroke history of Crimea pre-20th century?
3: Well, Claire, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Um, It's an excellent question. Um, And I think we would do well to actually probably back up and make two things clear to, to listeners. And that is, first, that Russia is an expansionist land empire. And the second thing is that Crimea is is very likely its most prized colony or one of its most prized colonies. So when I say expansionist land empire, I'm trying to distinguish it from maritime empires. So those are the ones we typically have in mind. Uh we think about British colonizers, let's say, stepping off a ship, right? Um Russian colonizers dismount a horse. And uh whereas British colonizers, um, to take this example a little bit further, tend to extract resources from colonies and then enrich the center. Russian colonizers throughout their century have tended to assimilate peoples and often engage in what we call settler colonialism. That is, they efface and erase indigenous peoples and then replace them. So the historian Jeffrey Hosking puts this very well: Britain had an empire, Russia is an empire. So if we if we want a broad brush view of Crimea I think one way of trying to do it or describe it um, in one sentence is to say that the history of Crimea before the 20th century is a history of Russian imperial conquest. That is, it's a history of an empire seeking to efface the past of Crimea and, more importantly, uh, an attempt to replace it with its own myth and its own people. So um, I think we in the West have largely fallen for this myth. And one of the things that I think we'd do well to study right now is a bit more of this, like the 18th century history, particularly the Crimean Tatar Khanate, which for centuries ruled over not only the Crimean Peninsula, but also these adjacent steplands in southern Ukraine. And right now, the most of the front, or we'd say most of the front of the current war is actually tracing the northern borders, of what had been the Crimean Tatar Khanate that was annexed by Catherine II in 1783. Um, if you read... Conventional histories of Russia that story of the annexation seems like an embrace of the Crimean Tatars to Russian power but actually came after four Consecutive invasions of Crimea eventually the Khanate capitulated and its territory was absorbed Into the Russian Empire, but one thing we need to understand is that what Catherine acquired in 1783 was not what Putin grabbed in 2014 so what she took was both the Crimean Peninsula and this adjacent Steppland. Um So place the, the area that we now associate with cities like Mariupol, Melatopol, Gerson, etc. So um, that history is really alive to us today. So if we're looking at uh, the broad history of Crimea, we have to be focusing on, let's say, a progressive act of ethnic cleansing that saw a, an indigenous population that in 1850 or so constituted upwards of 80% of the population disappear um, in, a, in a period of decades. Um, and the Russian imperial project has been to conceal that history, to, to cloak that. And I think um, that history is very much um, in the background, deep background of this current war.
0: How exactly would you define a Tatar? And is there, are there any other words or phrases that we use interchangeably?
3: Well, I'd say, I'd say that you know, the, the Crimean Tatars are um, a Sunni Muslim Turkic-speaking people um, who, as I mentioned before, ruled over the peninsula for centuries um, and were the dominant population well into the middle of the 19th century. Um, they dwindled due to ethnic cleansing, both by uh, Alexander II, who actually um, explicitly called for what he called the achishchenya, the cleansing of the Tatar people from the peninsula, and the replacement of the Tatars with peasants from outside Crimea. So if we're thinking about the 20th century as well, we can see Stalin who deports what's left of the Crimean-Tatar population in 1944. He's actually finishing what Alexander II started in the 19th century. That is an ethnic cleansing of this people. They were um, uh, deported to Central Asia, other far reaches of the Soviet Union. Um, And we can see a kind of anxiety in those acts Right, uh, an ex- implicit understanding that that Russian power doesn't really belong; that they have to abs- absolutely expunge this Islamic Sunni Muslim Turkic-speaking past, um, and then create their own myth, um, which takes off really in the twentieth century, as we'll see.
0: What is the relationship, be it political, cultural, or social, between Crimea and the rest of Ukraine?
3: Well, one thing to to keep in mind is that, as you know, on this excellent podcast, Ukraine is a very diverse country and its remarkable historical development um, is a story of people from different empires. So the Russian Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and indeed even Ottoman Empire over the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, coalescing around the idea of modern Ukraine, which was largely an anti-imperial idea opposed to autocracy to the east. Uh, aristocracy to um, the West. And the story of Crimea and its connections to the rest of Ukraine uh, are very similar to the connections of various regions to of Ukraine to each other. Um, and effectively, they result in 1991 with a majority of voters in Crimea supporting Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union. Um, and so the Islamic past, which was effaced, and this ethnic cleansing that led to many Russians as well as Ukrainians in the Soviet period being sent over to settle and take this stolen Crimean Tatar property, for instance, um, and create what they called this new Russian Crimea with its own Russian form. Um, It has been distinctive from the rest of Ukraine because of the intensity of that colonial project. Um, And so... That is the one, let's say, complicating factor we can say here that's been persistent over the decades and even the centuries is, once again, that Islamic past that has been effaced and ignored, even here among Western scholars, very sadly. And secondly, the attempts by Russia and Soviet authorities to efface it, to erase it. Um, And I think Ukraine has struggled uh, with its own relationship until recently in acknowledging this past itself. Um, in identifying its own colonial experience and seeing it through the lens of the Crimean Tatar experience. That's something that's actually happened um, rapidly since 2014, since the annexation by Putin's forces in the spring of 2014. Um, And there's been a lot of soul searching among cultural actors in Crimea, in Ukraine. Um, There's a lot of fellowship and solidarity between Ukrainian culture and Crimean Tatar culture are seeing that they have much more in common due to this colonial past than they had commonly recognized.
0: I'm so sorry. I think we've lost our speaker. If you could try to leave a message. I'm I'm back, I think,
3: Claire. Sorry about that.
0: Okay. If we can just jump to, if you could tell us more about what happened in 2014 and what the cultural and political impact was in Crimea.
3: Well, I think we often talk about self-determination when discussing Crimea. And I mentioned 1991, the vote of the majority um, in Crimea for Ukraine's independence. It's worth pointing out that in 2013, um, there was a very substantial study surveying uh, 1,200 respondents in Crimea, assessing a number of things. Among them was um, the view on the status of Crimea. And and there, the large majority of respondents viewed Crimea as part of Ukraine. So the notion that somehow Crimea should secede was very much of a minority view. It's important that we remember that, that reality in 2013. Um, another wonderful scholar, Eleanor Knott, has has done excellent work with uh, interviews of various actors in Crimea that showed that separatism Um, even among, let's say, pro-Russian communities in Crimea, was not a very viable option. And that's exactly why in 2014, we see Russian forces without insignia on the peninsula. It's an implicit recognition that, one, it's an illegal operation. Um, And the whole, let's say, display the performance of a so-called referendum at the barrel of a gun um, was itself this implicit recognition Um, that the majority of respondents and voters in Crimea um, were not um, as inclined to support this forcible annexation. Now, in 2014, there was a story about a report from Putin's Human Rights Council um, that uh, revealed, at least according to this particular memo from the Human Rights Council, that about 30% of Crimea's population actually turned out for the so-called referendum, and about half of that 30% supported the idea of seceding from Ukraine. So I think it's important, first of all, to remember that history, that self-determination in Crimea is still something that needs to be negotiated and better understood. But since 2014, um, to put it very quickly and bluntly, um, the peninsula was militarized and not only militarized in terms of weapons, but militarized in terms of consciousness itself. So um, we see a flood of missiles, nuclear-capable missiles, in particular into Crimea over a period of years, and then we see these crackdowns on Crimean Tatar and indeed Ukrainian civil society. So we see thousands needing to, to leave the peninsula in 2014. The number is still unclear, but we have seen consistently over... Uh, eight years now, a brutal crackdown against Crimean Tatar civil society. So we can see the Tsars and Stalin's project living out um, its own life in the 21st century, that new backdoor deportations are taking place all the time. And we, I think, in the West have um, ignored this history. I mean, we paid a great deal of attention to Crimea in 2014, and rightly so. But then that attention... um, um, waned significantly uh, crimea fell off um, newspaper headlines and the consequences of that amnesia our failure to pay attention has been catastrophic i think because what we've seen now is that crimea was allowed to become this um, massive springboard this catapult um, to push uh, an invasion further into ukrainian territory. The signs were always there, that escalation was on the horizon. And I think a lot of us, particularly um, in uh, the diplomatic community, um, just hoped for the best and insisted that uh, the Kremlin wouldn't be so reckless to pursue further escalation when all signs pointed um, in the other direction.
0: What would you like people listening to know about Crimea? What is the one or two things you would like our listeners to take away from this episode?
3: Well, I suppose... There, there are so many things I'd love to discuss, but I think in terms of the current war, it's very important for us to understand that um, Crimea is not, let's say, this island or jewel that um, Russian metaphors um, often often, uh, often say, um, and that, in fact, what we need to do is think about Crimea as a peninsula attached to the stepland of southern Ukraine. Um, and and so, f- when we understand Crimea in this fashion—not simply a peninsula, but a, a, a peninsula with a stepland land into southern Ukraine—you can see and understand some of the trajectories of Russian aggression against Ukraine. So, in March 2014, as we discussed earlier, Putin annexes Crimea and effectively disconnects Crimea from resource flows from Ukraine, um, which have been historically extremely important for um, the peninsula. Um, so. Uh, they, uh, the Putin's forces cut off Crimea from fresh water supply. Um, 85% of Crimea's freshwater um, traditionally came from the North Crimean canal that was built um, in uh, the Soviet period, in particular, the period under which Ukrainian uh, administrators governed Crimea. That's also in a really important story. One thing to fix is this notion of a a a gift by Khrushchev to Ukraine that we often entertain here in Britain and the United States, that in 1954, somehow Khrushchev, as Elon Musk put it, made a mistake in giving um, uh, Crimea to Soviet Ukraine. Um, The historical record shows that it was a rescue, that Crimea after the Second World War, and in particular after the deportation of the Crimean Tatars in 1944, was in a terrible economic state. And the Soviet authorities, including Khrushchev, Understood the historical reality of the peninsula being attached to the steppeland. So Crimea is a natural extension of the Ukrainian steppe. It has no physical natural connection to Russia. Um, the vanity bridge that Putin has built, um, finished in or at least uh, opened up in 2018, cannot compensate for the resource losses um, in Crimea. Since, these, um, this, since this since divorce from the rest of mainland Ukraine. And so um, Putin's forces, therefore, in February, on the very first day of the full-scale invasion, as I mentioned before, used Crimea as a springboard to tear into Ukraine's Kherson Oblast and to seize control of this critical water and resource supply, which means there was an implicit recognition of this fundamental historical reality that Crimea needs to be connected To the ukrainian mainland so if we if we understand if our listeners understand um, this larger broader historical reality of crimea the peninsula being attached and needing to be attached to the ukrainian mainland we can understand that russia's hold is tenuous because any proposed peace settlement let's say we imagine um a conclusion to this war that we all hope will come soon Um, if we entertain the idea of codifying the occupation of crimea in exchange for a cessation of hostilities, it would simply be kicking the can down the road. At worst, it would be a ticking time bomb because the truth is Ukraine will never be stable with a Russian-occupied Crimea, and a Russian-occupied Crimea will never be resource-secure without Ukraine. And this latter component has been, I think, overlooked by a lot of analysts. But when we look over the, the centuries of Crimea's history, we see this dependency of the peninsula with the Ukrainian mainland. They need to be joined together. And so when we understand that we can see more of Putin's designs, we can also understand why we need to imagine Ukraine reclaiming um, all its sovereign, internationally recognized territory.
0: I just wanted to touch on your own personal experiences in Crimea. So on your visits, what have your trips been like? What have the people been like and what did you see while you were there?
3: Oh, so many things, so many relationships, Claire, over uh, um, decades. I've been traveling to Crimea since the 1990s. Um, It's a uh, very complicated, um, wonderful place. Um, Obviously, the biggest difference um, of Crimea from the rest of Ukraine is this uh, nearly nine years now of occupation and the changing of um, worldviews and the sad alienation of the population of the peninsula from the rest of the world, the way it's become a gray area. But in the 1990s, like the rest of Ukraine, there was a lot of um, soul searching about identity, uh, some attempts to confront this imperial past that I mentioned the the Kremlin's interested in in effacing and and ignoring. Um, And I think over time, there was very much an acceptance. Um, There were lots of political... Contest between Kyiv and Simferopol and the rest of Crimea. But ultimately, by 2013, we could see Crimea well established within state structures in Ukraine. Um, There was a broader acceptance of Ukrainian national identity as a civic concept in which ethnic Russians, ethnic Ukrainians, ethnic Crimean Tatars could all be a part of this broader project. So, over the years of my visits, I've seen these feelings evolve. um, But sadly, since occupation, In 2014, um, this organic growth, this ability of people to relate to each other in new ways, to actually examine their history with fresh perspective, um, that's disappeared in many ways. And that's been a sad development for Crimea and obviously a horrific one uh, for security in Ukraine and, and in Europe.
0: Thank you. We've heard a little bit about Ukrainian literature over the past few months on this podcast, but you study specifically Crimean Tatar literature. Could you tell us a little bit about it?
3: Well, I should say um, my my field of specialty is Ukrainian literature primarily, and I've been very pleased to see on this podcast such a focus on Ukrainian literature, a great discussion about Taras Shepchenko in particular, I can recall very fondly. Um, my journey to Crimean-Tatar literature was largely um, a confrontation with my own ignorance. I had been spending time in Crimea over the years. I had been seeing in Ukrainian culture in particular um, a confrontation with the deportation of the Crimean-Tatars in 1944. Um, I mentioned that earlier. Um, we can see in the Soviet period a lot of Ukrainian writers relating to the Crimean Tatars through the experience of this deportation and write poems and and even novels that are uh, trying to understand not only the history of the dispossession of the Crimean Tatars, but also their relationship with Ukrainians over the centuries. It's worth pointing out that in the 17th century, for instance, Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars align with each other against polish power which led to the uh, establishment of the so-called kozak hetmanate um, in the middle of the 17th century so when ukrainians are looking back and telling them the story of their their own journey to political statehood the crimean tatars are very important but they also have a history of being let's say, a historical enemy prior to that point too so there's a lot of soul searching in this culture about these relationships and i i felt compelled to try to learn Crimean Tatar as best I could and to indeed read about their own, um, their own literature, um, their own reflections on this history of dispossession. I think often, um, and I've been guilty of this myself, we, we, we look at these so-called subaltern peoples and, um, and write about them and study them from the perspective of, of other languages rather than taking the time to, to, to study their language as best we can. So that's, that, that explains my journey to Crimean Tatar literature, which is extremely rich, um, particularly in the 17th, 18th century. They have a wonderful um, divan uh, literature uh, tradition, great poetry. Um, but obviously in the 20th century, a lot of their culture is focused on their identity and the threats to their identity. Um, the Soviet regime was very interested not only in displacing the Crimean Tatars, but depriving them of the very relationship to their own homeland. So in 1967, for instance, um, they admit that the Crimean Tatars had been deported in 1944, but then seek to establish a new identity for them. And they start referring to them as the Tatars, quote, formerly resident in Crimea. So taking away their attachment to their homeland. So a lot of their culture, a lot of their literature um, focuses on home, the question of home. And this right now, particularly after 2014 is a common theme for Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars. But this annexation of Crimea, this, um, this wound has forced Ukrainian artists and Crimean Tatar artists to question what it means to be at home. And to explore how they can be at home together.
0: In that vein of sort of giving voice to artists, writers, poets, who would you recommend our audience goes away and looks up?
3: Well, it's difficult to find, um, unfortunately. Crimean Tatar works in English translation. So I'll mention um, one figure in particular. Um, I think it's an important name for us to know. His name is Shamil Ali Aliuddin was often referred to as the brightest light in Crimean Tatar culture, but he's also a fascinating historical figure. So he's someone who uh, was an avid translator, first of all, of Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian language literature, and saw a lot of commonalities um, with themes in Ukrainian language literature. But he was also someone who served in the Red Army and fought valiantly in the Second World War, but returned to Crimea in 1944. To a nightmare because the family he was expecting to see had been deported in May 1944. Um, He was not informed of this. He goes back to his own home, in fact, near Simferopol, and confronts a new family that had taken his family's home and confronts the person at the door who realizes this Red Army soldier is still a Crimean Tatar and smiles, understanding that this person no longer has rights within the Soviet system. So eventually Aledin finds his wife and daughter in Central Asia, near near death from starvation in a so-called special settlement camp. And nonetheless, um, keeps writing, uh, keeps the traditions of Crimean-Tatar alive, uh, Crimean-Tatar culture alive. And in fact, writes a series of of novels that seek to resurrect um, this history of Crimean-Tatar Crimea, so if one goes to Bilohirsk, for instance, in Crimea, and one thing to understand about Crimea is that we often think of it as this you know, mountainous southern coast, but actually um, the arid peninsula is a key part of its identity. And cities like Simferopol, Bilohirsk, inside the steppelin, uh, have been very influential in, over the course of modern history. Um, Bilohirsk used to be known as Karavsu Bazar, a really vibrant uh, Crimean Tatar cosmopolitan city. Um, They used to call it the Paris of Crimea. Um, And so Aliuddin writes about this history, resurrects it through fiction, and then also revisits these allegiances and and, um, uh, identities of of solidarity between Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars in the 17th century. So a really versatile artist, someone who wrote poetry as well as prose. So Shamil Aliuddin is a good name to know.
0: I'd like to open up the floor to you, Francis and Roland. So please jump in with your own questions here.
1: Thank you, Claire. And really interesting to hear your perspective, Rory. I mean, I just wanted to, we've talked a lot about the culture and the context here. And so I just wanted to bring it back to what is, of course, the central question in relation to the war at present, which is what will happen if Crimea becomes the centrepiece of the military action that we're expecting to see in the coming months? What are your thoughts generally, first of all, on the potential reconquest by Ukraine? how will russia react how will putin react and what do you think is the feasibility of ukraine taking back crimea successfully in a in a in a period of time that is perhaps what's the way of phrasing this that it, 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 in a period of time that isn't so that isn't overly long and overly short that can mean things uh, become more and more tense on the peninsula
3: Thanks for the question, Francis. And first of all, I would just say in terms of the term reconquest, I'd simply say deoccupation. And this is important because I do think you're right to raise questions about um, the liberation of Crimea. Um, And I do think it's important for us to understand how millions of residents of Crimea have seen their rights and freedoms curtailed uh, very violently, actually, by Russian occupation. Um, And that the Ukrainian state has a duty to those citizens. Um, given that they, they live on its own um, legal, internationally recognized territory. But obviously, in terms of the practicalities of the military intervention in Crimea, um, first of all, I, I, I'm not a military analyst, but um, obviously in history, we see these things progress gradually and then suddenly. And I think the the analyses that you cited a little bit earlier in today's podcast of this slow attrition and then sudden capitulation seem to me um, uh, fairly reasonable. I, I'm not sure about the time frame, but I do think that the urgency is there, and that I, I do think that the Zelensky administration and the Ukrainian armed forces realize what I mentioned earlier: that under no circumstances can the occupation, Russian occupation of Crimea, be left, um, because peace will never come. Um, The one thing that we learn from uh, the history of Crimea is that when Crimea is separated from Ukraine, it suffers decline. And we see that when it's occupied by Russia, it sows concord, discord rather. So it becomes a place that triggers conflict. And you can see that in the context of the Crimean War in the 19th century. Um, We can see it now. It's been left to become this militarized um, bastion in the Black Sea which causes a lot of problems. So I think they understand that you can't go halfway here and that's not Ukraine's choice. It's been a a choice foisted upon them. Um, But for long lasting, enduring peace, victory in this respect has to be absolute. Now, how it happens um, is a big question. Obviously there'll have to be a peace settlement at some point, but we here, I think need to be very aware that if we let a peace settlement um, go forward with Crimea still remaining under Russian control, we're only looking at future escalation. Um, a Ukrainian Crimea, one that probably will have to unfold um, under different stages, perhaps with international mediation, will be the, the best guarantor of the rights and privileges and, and the freedoms of the people in Crimea, but also of broader uh, regional and world peace. Um, I, I think that's very, very clear. How how it happens is going to be um, the big question. I would say that the Zelensky administration has been very savvy in this respect, um, they have an initiative called the Crimean Platform that is rallying the international diplomatic communi- uh, community around ideas for this deoccupation. What's it going to take to start changing and winning hearts and minds in Crimea once again? Um, what do what what do Ukrainian authorities do, presuming let's say they are able um, to assert? administrative control over Crimea once again. What do they do with residents that have come to Crimea from Russia since 2014? Um, Process of lustration. Um, I do think the biggest thing will be the economy of Crimea. If Ukraine presents uh, a viable and exciting economic future, and if the view of Russia is one of decline, as we're seeing now, and potential collapse, I think that will make a big difference in slowly but surely bringing... Um, those who've been captivated by, unfortunately, Russian disinformation for nearly nine years, bring them back into a space where they can be reached um, and and um, and reconnected effectively with the Ukrainian political project.
1: Well, you, you, you touched immediately there on what was going to be my next question, which is on this very sensitive subject of those that have been relocated to Crimea or who have moved there on their own volition since uh, 2014. How feasible do you think it is? How likely do you think it is that there will be pressure put on Ukraine, whether internationally or domestically, for those people to be removed back to Russia? Um, Not not by force, but in terms of encouraged to go back um, through legal avenues. Do you think that's likely? I mean, this is, of course, it's, it's a very, very difficult subject to, to talk about. But this is a, a conversation that had to happen at the end of the Second World War, which I've talked about on this podcast previously. And it had it came at a huge moral cost, but it was one that was deemed worthwhile. I'm talking about this broadly in the Eastern European context. It was one that was deemed worthwhile but for the Allies. And I do w- wonder whether this is going to be a very, very relevant question in the years ahead. But very interested to hear your perspective on that.
3: Yeah, Francis, thanks so much for that question. I think you're absolutely right. This is... Um... Uh, a very difficult question to to consider now because we're not sure, of course, how this, the occupation is going to occur. But what I will say is that the Zelensky administration is fairly clear that those who have come to Crimea after 2014 illegally, um, again, under international law, something needs to be done. Um, a process needs to be instantiated by which either they leave, can come back to, un, under different circumstances, but... Um, uh, we either have to hold to these principles of international law and then follow through on their implications or we don't and i would say if we don't we're just going to unfortunately travel down this path of further escalation what we've seen since 2014 if we go back even further to the invasion of georgia over time every every single stage of appeasing russia has seen um, this horror of escalation continue so the best thing that I think the West can do is stick to its principles, follow through on the law, obviously um, have, um, and I think the Zelensky administration understands that the messaging here, for lack of a better term, public relations needs to be a major focus of their attention because the hearts and minds um, will be tricky. It won't be like Kherson. Um, in, in, this has been nearly nine years of what I'd call uh, pure Pure brainwashing from uh, Russian disinformation campaigns. So um, these various details will be tricky. Um, I wouldn't want to prejudice future discussions by saying how they should go, but I will say that I've seen from the Ukrainian state very serious people talking about these difficult issues, and I think um, they're getting themselves ready, almost putting together something like a shadow government, to come in so that they're not caught cold um, by any deoccupation. So they can serve the residents on the peninsula as best they can.
1: Thank you. Just one more from me before I hand over to Roland, which is we've not talked about Navalny, who of course is the imprisoned Russian opposition leader to Putin. And one of the more troubling elements of him from the perspective of many Western Europe and Ukrainian commentators is the fact that he too sees Crimea as being sort of more broadly under the Russian sphere of influence, or indeed as part of Russia. Just wondered whether you had any insights on that and the challenges that that may cause for the future of Russia's relationship with the Crimea, if if Ukraine is able to take it back. There's
3: an old expression, um, originally attributed to Volodymyr Vinachenko, a, a, a politician and, and more importantly, a cultural figure of the early 20th century in Ukraine, and that is that the uh, the question of Russian liberalism ends when the question of uh, the Ukrainian project begins. That is, the Russian liberal um, may seem highly oppositional in various ways, but he or she may harbor these imperialist um, visions and aspirations, certainly vis-a-vis Ukrainians. And I think Navalny is one of these types of, of liberals, unfortunately, someone who um, envisions Russia um, as, let's say, democratic uh, in some way. Um, Certainly, he's been focused on corruption and has been courageous in his fight against corruption. But unfortunately, he's, I think, symptomatic of a type of Russian liberal that has not taken on board the experiences of non-Russian peoples, not only in the period of the Russian Empire, but also the Soviet Union. And he needs to confront that uh, most directly, as many Russian liberals do. Um, So... His view on Crimea, this notion of, well, Crimea is not a sandwich that can be passed back and forth, um, I, I think is, is um, unfortunate, frankly. And it's not one that shows a true broad understanding of the complexities of the Crimean Peninsula. And particularly, again, this is something we have to focus on, the economic and geographical dependency of the peninsula on the Ukrainian stepland. Um, which is, again, why we saw on the 24th of February, troops push from Crimea into Kherson to claim that access to the northern Crimean Canal. Because after 2014, Kiev was forced, due to the annexation, to shut off the water supply. So these are the things that show us how tightly bound the steppelin in southern ukraine are to the crimean peninsula these are the facts that people like Navalny just look past a bit like what we've done with brexit and northern ireland um, but serious people need to evaluate these economic and historical um, connections otherwise um, we're just preparing ourselves for future escalation down the line
2: really really fascinating stuff it's always a, a joy to, to to listen to someone who's really kind of you know unlike us journalists kind of scraping the surface so things are really kind of sat and thought and got deep into these subjects because um, we always learned a lot um i wanted to push you a little bit on on this question of you talked about the heart and minds issue and okay it's not going to be like that i mean when you speak to when i speak to kind of i don't know various western experts academics diplomats whoever right about about how this war ends there's always this question about crimea is it realistic why there's this kind of um sense that the ukrainians just aren't aren't talking realistically about crimea um and i i think i think there's two reasons one because um if you look at just just militarily it's a it's a pretty steep mountain to climb right you know it's a peninsula it's got a narrow isthmus it's heavily militarized um all of that so that's probably going to be tricky if if you're going to do it that way and and the second thing they're thinking about is well there's two things really one is one is you know this urge for the russians to to you know to give russians something maybe the russians won't accept that maybe putin would go nuclear but the other thing that always comes up is like look it, it is not going to be like Kherson it is not going to be like Kharkiv right? this this is going to be a ukrainian army um going in to take control of a largely hostile population that that seems to be the assumption among, amongst many people who watch this and i'm just interested in your comments i mean you do you know, you point out that you know as late as 2013, most people you know had no interest in separatism. At least that's what what the polls say. Um, but it has been eight years. You know, Maidan um, did change things. The atmosphere during the during the annexation was pretty febrile. I mean, especially in Sevastopol, which is kind of you know distinct in its kind of Russian militariness from from the rest of the peninsula. I mean, is your is your contention that those people have got it wrong? Actually, um, that there, there's a sizable silent uh, proportion of the population in Crimea who would either welcome or at least acquiesce um, to the Ukrainians advancing, or do you think no? Actually, th- th- this is a serious, serious issue, and and it's it's one that the Ukrainians are going to have to confront. Because I, I can't I can't think of, with the exception of some parts of Donbass, another place where you know I could see you know Ukrainian soldiers if they get in there, you know, worried about walking down the street potentially.
3: I, Roland, I completely um agree that one can never underestimate the challenge and i do think that we need to acknowledge that this question often relies on a vision of a military deoccupation of crimea i think there are a lot of ways in which we can see deoccupation taking place i think um a massive defeat of the Russian military in other parts of the battlefield can bring apart a a broader collapse. I'm not talking about a palace coup, um, but I do think if we look at so many wars in human history, um, that defeat... In one place can lead to defeat in another. The bigger question is, you know, are we envisioning that you know uh, Russian uh, Ukrainian soldiers going to be walking down the street, as you said before? I'm not sure if we have to think of it that way. And I merely say that if we're taking a broad historical view, and we realize that the peninsula belongs in Ukraine as a geographical organism, and that it's relied on these resources. And at the same time, we have this moral and legal principle that we need to uphold for the safety uh, of of the continent. I think we need to take very seriously this notion of uh, deoccupation of Crimea. I often find that analysts that I talk to um, who don't really know Ukraine very well um, are, are falling back to the same logic of, well, you know, Putin might escalate further, or he might use nuclear weapons. I mean, these are the things I've been hearing for a very long time. But meanwhile, we lose track Of the very principles that got us here. So, one of these is understanding, number one, how Crimea effectively was rescued by Soviet Ukraine after 1954. If we think about the burgeoning economy, relatively speaking, that came in the Soviet period in Crimea, if we're thinking about all the high rise resorts that popped up along the southern coast, uh, if we think about the northern Crimean Canal itself, all these things took place. Um, under Soviet-Ukrainian administration. And the reason they did so is because Khrushchev, um, he wasn't drunk, he wasn't persuaded by this notion of 300 years of Ukrainian-Russian friendship. He saw poverty in Crimea. In 1953, he traveled there, confronted so many different scores of Soviet settlers who were complaining about their material conditions and even telling him they'd been deceived in being invited to go take Crimean tatar homes and settle there. And he saw that the Russian administration, that is, Crimea was then at this time an oblast of Soviet Russia, and it had been left to rot effectively. Part of it had to do with the depopulation. So Stalin deported 200,000 people who had specialized agricultural knowledge in the t- tobacco fields, and viniculture, for instance, in vineyards. Um, and that led to a massive economic decline. So when we understand this history of Ukraine's importance to Crimea, um, instead of just talking about Crimea's importance to Ukraine, I think it helps us take a step back and see the reason why Crimea has been a a part of Ukraine since 1991 and why it was a part of Ukraine since 1954, even within the Soviet context, which is obviously complicated. Um, But just effectively saying, well, we think it will be hard Um, to change hearts and minds, so therefore we shouldn't do that, um, I think is not a persuasive argument. I think a persuasive argument is to say having Crimea return to Ukraine um, buttresses once again, fortifies international law. However this happens, it will have to be a phased uh, uh, approach. It'll have to be um, very much something that the world pays attention to. We'll have real issues of reconciliation to address, um, we'll have real issues of practical decolonization to address. Um, all those are very serious things and I think they'll take time. Um, but I do think for the sake of peace and enduring peace, they have to happen.
2: Mm. Uh, you're, you just, just to be clear, it's, it's, a kind of a, it's a bit of a hairspring thing, but when you say Crimea, of course it, as far as the Russians are concerned, it's, it's, it's the oblast, but also the, um, uh, the city of Sevastopol and you, you mean both, right? Your, 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 I do, your, I do, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, I do, yeah. Thank you. I'm t- I'm taking the peninsula as, let's say, the the uh, the the focus here. My use of the term Crimea, but also yeah. Sevastopol. Obviously, that's even a, a, a further layer of complication, given the militarization of Sevastopol. But we can see the militarization across the peninsula, as you know well. I mean, the the flooding of the peninsula with with weapons and this militarization of consciousness has been. Uh, an active thing day to day for nearly nine years. So um, th- it's going to be a, a hard slog to do this right. But I do think we have to be focused on the principle, um, sensitive to the history and to, to listen and, and to, to understand that you know, there are many people who colonized effectively um, Crimea after 1944 um, who naturally feel anxious about that history who feel anxious about the fact that their grandparents may have taken a home from another family and that family may come back and wish to take it again. So these are these these are complex claims that will require um, very deliberate, um, complex negotiations. But in terms of the principle of Crimea returning to Ukrainian control, I think that's that's key. Russian occupation has brought nothing but strife to the region, and also poverty uh, to Crimea. I mean, we're talking about a peninsula that for nearly nine years now has had water shortages, um, dirty water. um, There's environmental catastrophe, um, uh, spills, chemical spills off the coast of Crimea, um, ways in which its historical inheritance has been violated by um different renovation projects to Crimean Tatar um um uh, cultural uh, monuments that have been um perpetrated there's a lot that's been going on for 9 years now um that has been to the detriment of Crimea and its people um and I think those things have to be faced um and we've not really spent time talking about them we're only catching up now
2: following on from this um when you talk about decolonization, that, that's, that it, you began you began this discussion about, you know, distinguishing between, you know, a seaborne empire like the, I know, the British or the Portuguese um, where settlers go on boats, um, extract resources back to the center, and then, you know, along comes the mid-20th century and, you know, we let them go, but the, the core is still there. And you said, well, no, like, Russia still essentially is an empire. But you, you also talked about assimilation. Um, and, and it seems to me that in... A lot of these discussions of kind of, you know, decolonization of the Russian Empire uh, at the end of this war, um, it, that sometimes people seem to ignore how successful that's been. So you could look at large areas of Russia, which are, you know, nominally ethnic homelands, but most of the population now is ethnically Russian and likely to remain loyal to Moscow and things like that. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about, about that discussion. Do you think that that broader discussion, which I'm sure you've seen this debate about, um, you know, could finally the, the Russian land empire crumble as a result of this war? Is that what's going on here? Um, do you think that's something feasible or do you think that's just very far-fetched um, uh, kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff, which goes well beyond, um, you know, the kind of feasible question of, of whether or not Ukraine can retake Crimea?
3: I think uh, empires in our modern world are disadvantaged, um, particularly land empires. And I do think it's not far-fetched to imagine a, a, a future collapse. I, I, I do think this idea of you know timing it is, is, is rather foolish. One doesn't know when it's going to happen. But when you have a center that is brutally assimilating um, peoples on its borders, invading its neighbors— um, isolating local political elites, depriving them of agency and power, um, seeking to uh, stifle national culture, of limiting their national languages. Um, we've seen this in history countless times. Um, this leads to a collapse of the imperial center one way or the other. So I do think it's, it's on the horizon. I wouldn't say it's necessarily imminent. I, I'm very reticent to make any kind of prediction like this. But I would say that um, if you look at Ukraine, uh, this was the conversation many people had in 1990, which was, first of all, a problematic conversation because there are too many conflation's of the identity of a Russian speaker who lived in Ukraine, and the identity of an ethnic Russian. And in the West, we've we've been guilty of this conflation too often, and that led us to say, "Well, Ukraine is divided. It's divided between a pro-Russian east and a pro-EU west." Obviously, no one's really talking about the division anymore because we can see that unity, which we shouldn't romanticize, it's complicated, but it's real. And there were a lot of conversations about um, in the 1990s of, of those who, let's say, came out of this post-Soviet context in the east of Ukraine, in places like Nipepetrovsk, Kherson, Odessa, um, that in fact, the, the Russian imperial identity would be resurgent. But what we've seen instead is a progressive movement, um, not away from one's Russian heritage, but to a Ukrainian future. And that's one thing we have to keep in mind. Russia and the Kremlin do not offer their own people a vision of the future. It's almost exclusively an obsession about the past. Ukraine is very future oriented um, Zelensky does a very good job of, of keeping the narrative focused on the future. And that means lots of people, regardless of their historical background, their ethnic background, can envision a place for their children and grandchildren in this democratic um, and hopefully more Um, peaceful uh, uh, country. So I I think what happens to Russia is obviously a huge question. And it's one that everyone should be aware of. But we were all in the 1980s, very worried about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, We can recall the chicken Kiev speech in 1990 by George H.W. Bush, in which he goes to Kiev and, and tells Ukrainians, listen, don't don't follow your um, your aspirations for independence It will lead to great instability. Um, that didn't happen. Um, but the one thing that didn't happen in follow-up was a confrontation with Russian and Soviet colonialism. And we in the West are complicit in that failure. We didn't focus enough on the peoples like uh, Estonians, Latvians, Ukrainians, Georgians who were calling attention to uh, the need for our support for proper pot processes of decolonization, which could have led to things like electoral quotas, it could have led to truth and reconciliation commissions, um, but that discourse, that discussion, just didn't happen. And as as a result, Russian Empire never had an accounting with itself, and
2: we're we're left to look at the consequences now. Thank you so much. i um, I'm. I think I'm going to hand back to Claire because I think we're running over time.
0: Before we do begin to wrap up the show, Rory, I was wondering if you had anything else you'd like to cover, anything you think we haven't asked or anything else you'd like to discuss?
3: Claire, thank you so much. I think, you know, uh, all the questions from Roland and Francis and yourself have been um, uh comprehensive, let's put it that way. And um, I really applaud The Telegraph for having this daily podcast. It's extremely important that we we keep focus um, and have these discussions on a regular basis. So thanks for having me.
0: Going to you, Francis, please could you tell us your final thoughts for the episode that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: Well, thank you, Claire. It was really, really interesting hearing Rory's in-depth uh, experiences of Crimea and also his insights on it. And I was just making notes here, and it's based on some conversations I've had also with listeners over over Twitter and I'm particularly thankful for James and his compilation of some of the conversation points relating to Crimea and indeed the general question of what Ukraine and why Ukraine thinks it's so important that its territorial integrity is 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 kept intact at the end of this war, including Crimea and those areas seized by Russia and the Donbass. And I'm just listing out here what some of those are. These are some of the arguments that are made from Ukrainians and Western commentators. So, of course, the first one is, is the danger of Russia having any military foothold in Crimea, the argument being that in future they might use it as as a launch pad for uh, an invasion. And I think that is one that, you know, given what we the regular listeners who've been with us from the beginning will remember how many conversations there were about the belief that there would be a major sea operation from uh, beginning in the Crimea territory and that would then um, lead to the major invasion push coming from the south or one of the major invasion pushes. So I can understand why Ukrainians think that. There's also, of course, and and of course Rory touched on this, this idea that uh, if if there isn't a, a, a territorial integrity at the end of this war for Ukraine, that Ukraine's future becomes much more uncertain, unstable domestically. Local politics forever remains divided between the war parties and the accommodation of occupation parties, perhaps, or at least in Ukraine itself. You see the situation where th- there will be different camps within the country who will say, well, actually, uh, you know, we, we should, we need to take back Crimea. Um, it's too dangerous. And it will just lead to a, a generation of division over this, over the question about where. Ukrainian borders lie, if indeed there were to be some sort of for- peace forced upon them. So I'm just mentioning that as one of the, uh, the the points I've read from Ukrainian commentators. Another, of course, is that it would lead to a half-hearted attempt to rebuild the country at the end of the war. Because as a consequence of this uncertainty about the future, about certain elements of of, of former Ukrainian territory, if Crimea were, were not to uh, be restored to Ukraine, there would be perhaps less investment from the West, Private investment, particularly because Ukraine would be deemed as too high risk. Then, of course, as Rory and I were talking about earlier on, you'd have the question of Ukrainian uh, um, citizenship and whether um, some people who might then move back into Ukraine, with, from Crimea, whether they would be Ukrainian citizens, whether they would be Russian citizens, or whether they would be in some sort of legal limbo that would need to then be in some way found, um, pushed back to uh, to Russia. There's also the question of EU and NATO membership being put permanently on hold as a consequence, potentially. And then, of course, you've got the issue of of foreign policy security guarantees from other countries as well. Are they more or less likely to support Ukraine in not only its memberships, but also in terms of other military support if they think there's an unanswered question relating to Crimea or other at territories that russia lays claim to so that is why those are just some of the reasons why this idea of total victory for ukraine is so often talked about and why it seems to matter so much is that it's not just a an issue of of um, national identity that's in the ukrainian soul it's pragmatic as well it's thinking about the future and there are a lot of concerns if crimea is not taken back so I just wanted to touch on that and to end on that because I think it's really important that when we're assessing the significance of Crimea, it's it's much more complicated than simply taking it back. It's It's something that really matters for the future of the Ukrainian state, arguably. And that's why it's right to continue to return to this and what is inevitably going to be, I think, one of the integral battlefields in the months to come.
0: And finally, to you, Roland, please leave us with your final thoughts.
2: I think... Rory made a, a really, a really strong cogent argument backing up that, that Ukrainian, you know, that famous Ukrainian claim, we're taking back all of our territory, including Crimea. However, I, I must say that that view is not shared in many Western capitals. And, um, you know, you have conversations with, I, I won't name the countries because, you know, they're the kind of speaking of record, but you can ask diplomats from certain Western countries in, in the in the quote unquote, you know, Grand Western Alliance, um, who, who will flatly say, no, that's not going to happen. Or or, or this, you know, widespread suspicion that this is a a maximalist kind of negotiating position. The idea that the reason the Ukrainians keep on saying this, we're taking back Crimea, is that, you know, you've you've got to go into the inevitable, painful peace talks, making it look like you're, you're asking for more than you're actually going to accept and that Crimea is actually going to be a very powerful card for them to play. I mean, I, I had a conversation with one a Ukrainian, actually, who also asked to remain anonymous because of the sensitivity of the subject, who said, you know, he could see a conversation kind of starting around the question of, OK, what if we're talking about Ukraine gets everything else back, including Donbass and gets into NATO and maybe you have some kind of formula by which Russia is able to maybe hang on to Crimea in some kind of way but it's such a sensitive subject it's such an emotionally sensitive subject for the Ukrainian public that there is absolutely no way you can you know that that can be discussed publicly and then there is the question of how Russians look at look at look at Crimea. I mean, the, the analogy that I always used to use, especially for British people, is kind of think about how Brits think about the Falkland Islands. And I would never, just to be clear, I'm not drawing a moral equivalence between the Falklands War and the annexation of Crimea. One was a response to, you know, aggression by a military dictatorship against the will of the people who lived there. You know, and and I suppose I'm you know a typical Briton in, in seeing Britain as perfectly justified in fighting that war. But, you know, before that before that happened you know people had forgotten about it the British government was in negotiations with Argentina on giving up those islands defense of the Falklands is, is part of now of our national myth after 2014 that became part of the part of it was so prominent in Russian national myth and I think kind of Alexei Navalny's kind of cautious comments about well you know it's Crimea is not a sandwich to be passed back and forth it was partly recognition of a political reality that, that he's a very savvy politician. He's always looking at kind of votes he might eventually be able to garner from the Russian public. He knew no elected Russian politician was going to be able to say, yeah, we're going to give it back. I think, I think if it does go the way that Roy was suggesting that Ukraine gets it back, then, you know, Russia will be, it would mean Russia and the Russian public and Russian elites being forced into a very unpleasant position of, of reassessing those assumptions, which I think to be fair, I think if, I'm not being and this that's exactly what Rory was saying needs to happen. But those are my last, my last thoughts on, on Crimea. And thanks very, very much, Rory, for, for coming on. I thought that was a fascinating discussion.
0: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.